this week on the Backtable Podcast. So I've noticed, you know, we've added a couple people, you know, straight out of fellowship, and I've noticed that a lot of people come out. And for example, like, like I think some of the things we're going to talk about, what we talked about in our last, in the last podcast was, you know, oh, well, you're biopsying HCC. Well, I was trained that you never biopsy HCC or you never biopsy a renal mass or, you know, you never lead a catheter without a wire or something, you know, some, all of those things that are like dogma in your fellowship are real. They don't, really don't hold up to be true when you're in private practice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Justin Lee. We had Justin on the show over two years ago. I looked it up. It was episode 20. For those of you who are interested, go back and check it out. It was an excellent discussion with Dr. Uh, Justin Lee and Dr. Terrence Gade about HCC treatment. Today, we're checking back in with Justin, and we're going to get an update on his practice and talk more about HCC treatment. Justin, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. All right. All right, Justin, uh, will you just give our audience an update of where you are with your practice and some other things about not really rehash the whole training, but kind of how long you've been out in practice and and where you currently are and what your practice looks like. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'm cresting the decade mark right now, which is uh, interesting because I thought that I'd be making retirement plans by now, but that's not happening. Uh, Just kidding. But basically, I started off in academic practice where I trained, which I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes get the opportunity to do. And within a short period of time, I just felt like there wasn't going to be a lot of mobility within that. And I kind of felt like I was getting pigeonholed. So I took the leap of faith three years into that and I left for Florida. I was at Washington, in Washington, D.C. and I left for the state of Florida and basically uh, became one of the IRs at a pretty big 850-bed community hospital. Um, working for a traditional private practice kind of partnership model group that had a well-established IR group um, at Tampa General Hospital with an IR fellowship and all that thing. But we were about an hour and a half south, and we did not have that. And the hospital that I went to work at, Sarasota Memorial Hospital, albeit big, didn't really have interventional radiologists, you know, of the kind that we would discuss on this type of podcast. So Eight years later, we have uh, built that. We, um, you know, we kind of do all things, including stroke. Uh, you know, we have a pretty robust IO practice, which, you know, obviously I'm involved in. And we've got a PAE program. And um, we're now actually sort of expanding ourselves into other more regional hospitals. So it's, you know, it's the real deal. I got you. How did it, how did it come basically to where you went to this this large hospital? I think you said eight hundred plus beds, and there was there was not a lot of IR to speak of, and then all of a sudden built it into well, I think what you described on the previous pro- podcast, where you're offering like a lot of different service lines at a really high level. Like we have a lot of of young listeners who I think are getting out now and are struggling with this practice development part, and so I thought maybe we would uh, dig into this and talk about some of the things that you did to, to build up the practice that you have today. Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, like, I think this is actually going to be my legacy 
You know, I, I have some type, like right now when I'm, we, I was just part of the Y90 summit for the SIO and, you know, clearly there is a lean towards sort of, you know, they even called it themselves the ivory tower kind of practitioners as it pertains to the data on how we treat things like, you know, interventional oncology specifically. Although what I noticed is that there's a huge gap in what happens in the communities. So for example, where I live, a patient has to travel an hour and a half north to go to Moffitt, which is like the closest cancer center. And if they're if they're in Fort Myers or if they're in the middle of the state, it's even farther than that. So what ends up happening at these community hospitals is is nothing. I mean, you know, just to give an example, we took over a little 300-bed hospital down in a community south of Sarasota during the pandemic. And um, on, uh, I was there Friday. Friday, a medical oncologist called me to complain that a liver biopsy hadn't been done. And I looked at the case and it's, you know, it's clearly an HCC. The patient's AFP is 1200. And, you know, what have they gotten? They've gotten a PET scan on the patient because that's what they would do. There's no MRI or, and so it's a fine line of when you get into yourself into that situation, and let's just say you just left, you know, you just left your fellowship to start going down a diatribe with probably somebody who's an established medical oncologist and start telling him or her your thoughts about, you know, liver directed therapy. You know what I mean? So, oh, absolutely. So I've noticed, you know, we've added a couple people, you know, straight out of fellowship. And I've noticed that a lot of people come out and, for example, like, like I think some of the things we're going to talk about, what we talked about in our last, the last podcast was, you know, oh, well, you're biopsying HCC. Well, I was trained that you never biopsy HCC or you never biopsy a renal mass or, you know, you never lead a catheter without a wire or something, you know, some, all of those things that are like dogma in your fellowship are real they don't really don't hold up to be true when you're in private practice. So in my experience, and this now is more than just Sarasota Memorial, because we also took over a hospital in Pensacola, Florida, and we just spent the last two years getting that up to speed and it's still mm-hmm. sort of a work in progress. My advice to people is number one, you know, you you have to you have to kind of check yourself a little bit and make sure that you are comfortable and I guess I, I guess I should back up and say this is specifically for IO, but the people who you're going to be talking to are medical oncologists for the most part, or maybe surgical oncologists. But you have to know your what their data is, and you have to be able to speak very fluidly on their data. You can't just promise things that they may not be aware of. So, for example, let's say you came out of fellowship. And, you know, you, and Y90, we just had a couple interesting, you know, presentations at Circe and ASCO, which were, you know, the dosisphere and the legacy trial. If, if you're not aware of the most recent trial of Atezo plus Bevacizumab that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and you start saying like, oh, for this HCC, I, you know, we need to do Y90. And on top of that, we need to hit 410 gray. Like you're going to, you're done. You know, the, the you think they're just going to tune out on that and then they're just not going to hear a whole lot about what you have to say. Well, right. So first off, the impact factor of New England Journal of Medicine <laughs> is way higher than anything that we have, number one. So so and it's hitting not just the medical oncologist, that's hitting like everybody. 
Sure. So number one, that's that's a big deal. Number two, the issue is, is it means that, you know, you don't really, you don't have your finger on the pulse of what's happening within a field that you're portending to be an expert on. And then number three, and, and this is in my mind, it means that you're not putting the work in to be, you know, an active clinical participant, which I think is one of the major problems that we have in interventional radiology is that, you know, there's still there, I think most most IR fellowships have clinic component, but some, you know, I, I still come about, they really don't, you know, they sit and they do the procedures, which is important to get, you know, proficient with the procedures, but the patients sort of might show up and they've already been teed up by the, by their attendings. And so they don't have that like working knowledge of like, how did this person get here? And so if you don't have that, that's going to be a real issue. That, so that's like the first thing. And those are things that you can do on your own. The second thing is when you're building a practice in a new area, you have to be super humble. And what that means is that if you came from a place where, you know, the attending was sort of able to say, well, we're not going to do that this weekend. We're, you know, that's, you know, that that'll be done on Monday. Well, you might not have that luxury where you, where you showed up, you know, a Venus access snafu where you get into an argument with a hospitalist or whomever over who's going to place the central line could turn into a lost referral down the road, right? So sure. if you're starting off, you kind of just have to take it. And then the last thing is really, I guess, in a macro scale, which is, again, what we talked about really in the last podcast, so I'll plug it. But, you know, things like biopsy, if you want to grow an IO practice, things like biopsy, venous access, ports, LPs, I mean, all that stuff, they all really go into a oncology practice. So if you want to not do one part of it and turf it off to say your body imager colleagues, and you only want to do the, the, the sexy part, you know, the, the kind of the therapies and whatnot, you're going to miss out on a ton of stuff. Number one, number two, as an interventional radiologist, you probably do it better. And then most importantly, as an interventional radiologist going to tumor boards and that type of thing, you probably know why, or you excuse me, understand why getting good cores and good access and all that other stuff is, is, is so necessary to the treatment of, a, of an oncology patient. Where, versus what I've noticed is our body guys, you know, whether you tell them, hey, they're sending these biopsy specimen out for genetic testing, they're still like wrapped up in, well, I can't do anything more than an FNA or I can't do anything more than a, um, you know, like a 21 uh, gauge biopsy when really they need tissue, right? And sure. so if you allow that to happen, you know, I think your practice is going to struggle. So there are a lot of things that you said there, and I, I'd like to kind of like recap some of those and unpack them uh, a little bit. But first, like, I'd like to just take it almost like in chronological order. Like when you first got to the hospital in Sarasota, I, I forgot what you said the name of the hospital was, but when you first got to that hospital, like when you when you saw the the landscape of what interventional radiology was currently and what it could be, like what were some of the first things that you saw as problems to say like, hey, this is low hanging fruit. This is what we have to operate on a high level before we move on to, like, say, introducing chemotherapy, radiation embolization. Like what were some of the first things that you saw like as to like the first things to tackle and, and begin like the building of the practice? Well, very clearly to me, what would happen would be, I mean, it's even, it's more granular. 
was patients would just get scheduled and I would have no idea what, you know, how they got there basically. So, you know, a, a typical example would be somebody shows up for a lung biopsy and they're on Plavix and I'm meeting them for the first time. And, you know, I don't want to do this. I've not seen the imaging or, you know, worse, you can't find the imaging because it wasn't done at your institution. So really quickly, where I think I, I attacked was the scheduling piece, um, saying like, look, I don't want, you know, just as an example for biopsies, I don't want patients being scheduled if they don't meet criteria that I'm comfortable with. And that meant, you know, really turning a switch on to make sure that, you know, we got imaging. We have, we have dozens of outpatient imaging centers. And so, yeah, the hospital is going to, if they want me to do this stuff, we're going to have to put some effort into figuring out how to get that, that's that, that information to me in advance in terms of things like ports and some of the other stuff, you know, I, I, I said, here are the SIR guidelines on, you know, how we schedule these people. And I want it to be same day or next day level service. And I don't want a non-physician to make the decision about whether or not a patient gets scheduled or not. I want it to be a physician to physician discussion. So if a person, let's, let's just say they, they ask for a, a G-tube. Sure. If a person asks for a G-tube, I, I want to talk to that doctor directly. And that started the process of making, you know, making relationships. That's, I think it's just extraordinarily huge. And unfortunately, in the beginning, a lot of times people are going to be a little standoffish and they might, you know, they might kind of, I don't want to say treat you poorly, but they might dismiss you. But I, I, you have to persist with that. So I think that's like the, that's like sort of the first thing. And then the, the last thing so, is. Well, can we, can I back up on some of that stuff? So, yeah. so basically what I heard is like, so for some of the low hanging procedures, like biopsies, G-tubes, port placements, basically you wanted to, so you're not actually seeing these patients in, in a formal clinic, I mean, to, to expedite care, but you did want to have a physician to physician discussion. And you also wanted to be able to like be in a position where you receive the referral and those patients are getting scheduled, like in a very short time interval. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good summary. I, I, we do actually have a clinic now and we do see biopsy patients before we do their procedure, but that comes along later. You know, the, there's a sure. lot of economics involved in that. And, and let me actually back up way in the beginning too. One of the things that I recognize is that, you know, a lot of guys who will come out and they'll go to a community practice, they'll have a big, you know, diagnostic load that they have to do. I believe it or not, I have that right now myself and I willingly took it in order for us to be able to add additional FTEs. One of the, the great travesties that we have in interventional is that, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff we do, from an RVU standpoint, it does not reimburse well. And then on top of that, you know, for you to organize like a biopsy, it can be a total Charlie Foxtrot of an hour of your time, and it's not, you know, it's not reimbursed. Sure. But what I think you have to convince your group on a little bit, and mine at least had the buy-in for that, is that that, you know, that was worth it and will pay dividends in the future. So I think for me, it meant that, let's say, I, I remember my, one of my first consults ever, you know, after hours was for a pulmonary embolism. And it was for like an IVC filter or something like that. Right. And I got in the car. I drove to the hospital. I saw the patient. I put a note in the chart. I recommended thrombolysis. 
in that situation. I, you know, I spoke to the patient about it. Then I picked up the phone. I called the attending. And what for me, fortuitously, the attending who I ended up speaking to was a member of the medical executive committee. And, you know, she was like super impressed that, you know, that, that that's what we did. And, you know, now that would be, you know, that would be the standard of care. They wouldn't even have batted an eye. But at that time, for them to see a interventional, you know, just quote unquote, at that time, we were just a radiologist on the floor seeing a patient was like groundbreaking, you know, and believe it or not, we actually had to fight for those privileges to admit people and all that other stuff. So wow. you can't get rid of the hard work and it sucked. I mean, I, there's not a real eloquent way to say it, but you know, I've treated, if you're in that situation, I would treat it like it's an extension of your fellowship, which really for me was kind of the first three years of my practice. You know, I was at the same place that I trained and I started doing Y90. Yeah. I mean, it was just a learning process. Uh, you know, I happened to be in attending, so I was billing and I was more responsible, but you know, I think if you, if you think that you're going to show up and people are just going to assume they, that, that, you know, or you're going to assume that they know what an interventional radiologist does, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And that's one of the points that I want to echo for like some of our, our younger audience is that not only do you have trouble educating other referring docs on what an interventional radiologist does, but some of them even are not all that familiar that interventional radiology is like a sub or, you know, a specialty or, or different or at this point, not a specialty is different from diagnostic radiology. And so I think there's a lot that goes on in terms of like educating, referring uh, doc. One of the things I wanted to back up and talk about is because this is like one of the things that in, in my practice uh, I've felt to be a problem is like you mentioned that your group had buy-in about like having a clinical IR service, but why either why did they already have that buy-in or how do you get the, or how do you convince them that this is important and this benefits them? Because you kind of mentioned earlier, like, it's it's sometimes people say that you know interventional radiology doesn't have great RVUs, but it's just when you compare it to diagnostic radiology, it seems like an RVU desert. So, like, what did you do with your diagnostic colleagues to to get this buy-in? Well, in in some of that, I was lucky in that the the Tampa General part of my group, you know, was pretty well established, and on top of that, you know, there was some leadership within our group that, you know, that kind of saw that as, you know, as something that we need. I mean, I will say there were periods of time where, you know, for example, my colleague and I, it was us on every other night and we're getting crushed and we, you know, I'm kind of begging them to hire another FTE for IR. And they're like, well, what if we hired a body radiologist and they could just do some of the, you know, the drainages and that type of stuff. And then, you know, and you guys will just, you know, just do the, uh, you know, the angio stuff. And I, and I kind of argued with them. I'm like, well, that doesn't do anything for me. Cause I'm still then I'm on call for that stuff. Cause you know, we did the right. first year we were there. I know this data cause we looked at it, but we did 64 tips, which is funny between two guys. That's way more than I was doing at my prior job in academics. That was a transplant center. I mean, it was sure. like unreal. And, um, I have thoughts about why that is, but I think it's a challenging thing to do for a group. But one of the things that I think that we do is that we said, well, we are going to take anything that involves a needle or upfront patient interaction, and we're going to do it all. So I didn't negotiate on like LPs. Just as an example, I hadn't done an LP <laughs> in like six years when I moved to Sarasota. 
And to this day, I still like to do them in a biplane room. I could care less <laughs> if it costs a ton. I don't even care. You know, like it takes me five seconds to do. Sure. But, you know, most of the time we're doing LPs nowadays for intrathecal chemo, which to me is sort of part of the spectrum of being an IO. Right. And when you're doing intrathecal chemo, you damn well want to make sure you're inside the thecal space, right? So, um, but so basically the bargain was, look, I don't take diagnostic call, but I also don't make you guys get out of the chair to go fart around with a paracentesis or a lumbar puncture or whatever it might be, you know? So that's sort of like our quid pro quo. One of the other things too, is that we, because we were on call so much, we didn't take diagnostic call, but as we've grown, we've taken down a little of it. So for example, we take the IRs in our group now take diagnostic backup calls. What that means is when the diagnostic radiologist is just getting slammed, we all have home workstations. We are the, the next call. And so we, I, I think what we do is we keep an open level of dialogue between the diagnostic side and the interventional side. And if you had asked me, like when I was in Georgetown, if you'd asked me, you know, where do you see IR? I was kind of like on this thing, like, well, you know, I'm not a radiologist. I'm a, you know, I'm a minimally invasive surgeon and all this other stuff. I now don't see it that way. I kind of understand that the real principle of an IR is radiologists, right? That the principle, say, for a, a cardiologist or a vascular surgeon, right, is that They've got a basis in, in something like that for vascular surgery, it's surgery. And I, I know you could argue that right now with their training programs. Sure, but sure. The, whenever you look at it, or at least like, you know, I started off in general surgery and then I switched into radiology, but a surgeon was always sort of like a surgeon at, at heart. Like if it, even if it meant like it was sort of outside their specialty, they would default back to the principles that you learn in your residency. Like how do you stabilize a patient, et cetera, et cetera. I think you can make a corollary for for IRs is that the principle is that we're imaging experts, right? We have the board certification from the ABR that says that even if a general surgeon might look at a scan and say, well, I know what's going on, really that he can't sign off on that. And so the way that I look at, at how I incorporate that is like, I'm part of an of imaging service overall. And just as an aside, being part of that imaging service probably is what makes my salary better than, you know, say a hospitalist who's, you know, running around the hospital seeing patients. But to the extent that I can be helpful within that work paradigm, I, I try to do that. And then what I found is that takes a lot of the tension away. And that's easier to do in, with a group of like 70 radiologists than it is to do in a group of like eight, you know, which For I don't, sure. I think Chris, you're in a small, a smaller group, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong on that. But uh, it's, no. it's more of a mid-sized group. So we about 30 to 40. Yeah. So yeah, so that's a bigger group. You can probably do it. But like I, I go, you know, as a Surtex proctor, I'll proctor people who, you know, they're, there's like two IRs and 10 radiologists. That's tough, you know, sure. that you're going to have to help out with that. But yeah. And one other piece of advice is like seeing a patient for inpatient consults. For some reason, that seems to just really resonate very strongly with like other medical staff members. And, and I don't know like what, you know, the other IRs or other groups are doing. But when an interventional radiologist goes to see a patient on the floor or when you get called out in the middle of the night to do a case and then you drive out there at midnight to go see a patient who you know already from the information that you have or the imaging that you have that you're not going to do a, a case on them to then go and see the patient and write a quick note. I, I think that's 
that's a really strong move from an interventional radiology and in, in establishing yourself as a clinical physician. And I think it goes a long way as far as practice development. Uh, did, did you have a similar experience with that, Justin? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the, the thing too is, is that you, you'll get on runs where you, you know, you're, you're doing it and, you know, like you're, you know, everything's clicking and then you'll get on runs where it doesn't happen. And I think this is also another thing to understand is that, you know, the, there's a, always an ebb and flow with uh, the practice. I mean, we will have times that are really hard and then times that are, that are much better. And then you add an FTE and things get a little, you know, they might get better, but then you get a little lazy, you know, like I've sort of had to get on some of my partners, even not to throw them under the bus, but like they don't have EMR access at their home. And so if you don't have something like that, well, then it makes it less likely that you're actually going to get, you know, get out of bed and look at the notes and whatnot. You're going to just go on face value like, oh, I don't want to do this. So, you know, we have access to the EMR at home. And even if I don't do a case, like, in fact, actually, I, I, I'm on I'm sort of on call this weekend for a little hospital patient with a diverticular abscess. It's not really drainable. The patient's not sick, but I still put a note in. And you know, nowadays, if the hospitalist or whoever it is sees that you put a note in, you know, I, I didn't have to drive into the hospital, but I put the note in and I basically said, you know, look, I'm, uh, you know, I, I understand what you're looking on. I, I understand what you see. I've evaluated the imaging at this time. I don't think the patient needs like that'll that'll get you a pass, you know, and and it's actually good patient care, you know, and I've some, sometimes had to explain this to some of my colleagues like, Hey, I know that you saw this patient and what you're thinking is exactly what I would be thinking, but you know, nobody knows that, you know, nobody knows that you saw the, that you even thought for 15 minutes, like, uh, I don't think this needs to be done. And so if that doesn't occur, like, you know, people are going to go, God, what the hell's wrong with IR, you know, or typical IR, you know, they don't, they're, they're like doctors when they want to be, but they, they don't practice when they don't, you know? I, I I totally agree, and and I guess I'm also showing my my age here that now I've been out in practice for five years. You said you've been out in ten. You start to turn into a curmudgeon with your younger colleagues, like when yes. they don't do these things. You're like, put the note in, guys. Put the yeah. note in. And once you put the note in, it's like locked, you know. Right. Um, and and some for some reason when you don't, it creates all this uncertainty. Mm-hmm.